Maya and Illusion, delivered in London. Almost all of you have heard of the word Maya. Generally, it's used, though incorrectly, to denote illusion or delusion or some such thing. But the theory of Maya forms one of the pillars upon which the Vedanta rests. It is therefore necessary that it should be properly understood. I ask a little patience of you, for there is a great danger of its being misunderstood. The oldest idea of Maya that we find in Vedic literature is the sense of delusion. But then the real theory had not been reached. We find such passages as Indra, through his Maya, assumed various forms. Here, it's true that the word Maya means something like magic, and we find various other passages always taking the same meaning. The word Maya then dropped out of sight altogether, but in the meantime, the idea was developing. Later, the question was raised, why can't we know this secret of the universe? And the answer given was very significant. Because we talk in vain, and because we're satisfied with the things of the senses, and because we're running after desires. Therefore, we, as it were, cover the reality with a mist. Here, the word Maya is not used at all, but we get the idea that the cause of our ignorance is a kind of mist that has come between us and the truth. Much later on, in one of the latest Upanishads, we find the word Maya reappearing, but this time a transformation has taken place in it, and a massive new meaning has attached itself to the word. Theories had been propounded and repeated. Others had been taken up, until at last the idea of Maya became fixed. We read in the Svetasvatara Upanishad, no nature to be Maya, and the ruler of this Maya is the Lord himself. Coming to our philosophers, we find that this word Maya has been manipulated in various fashions until we come to the great Shankaracharya. The theory of Maya was manipulated a little by the Buddhists too, but in the hands of the Buddhists it became very much like what is called idealism, and that is the meaning that is now generally given to the word Maya. When the Hindu says that the world is Maya, at once people get the idea that the world is an illusion. This interpretation has some basis as coming through the Buddhistic philosophers, because there was one section of philosophers who did not believe in the external world at all. But the Maya of the Vedanta, in its last developed form, is neither idealism nor realism, nor is it a theory. It is a simple statement of facts, what we are and what we see around us.
As I've told you before, the minds of the people from whom the Vedas came were intent upon following principles, discovering principles. They had no time to work upon details or to wait for them. They wanted to go deep into the heart of things. Something beyond was calling them, as it were, and they couldn't wait. Scattered through the Upanishads, we find that the details of subjects, which we now call modern sciences, are very often erroneous. But at the same time, their principles are correct. For instance, the idea of ether, which is one of the latest theories of modern science, is to be found in our ancient literature, in forms much more developed than is the modern scientific theory of ether today. But it was in principle. When they tried to demonstrate the workings of that principle, they made many mistakes. The theory of the all-pervading life principle, of which all life in this universe is but a differing manifestation, was understood in Vedic times. It is found in the Brahmanas. There is a long hymn in the Samhitas, in praise of prana, of which all life is but a manifestation. By the by, it may interest some of you to know that there are theories in the Vedic philosophy about the origin of life on this earth, very similar to some which have been advanced by some modern European scientists. You, of course, all know that there is a theory that life came from other planets. It is a settled doctrine with some Vedic philosophers that life comes in this way from the moon. Coming to the principles, we find these Vedic thinkers very courageous and wonderfully bold in propounding large and generalised theories. Their solution of the mystery of the universe from the external world was as satisfactory as it could be. The detailed workings of modern science do not bring the question one step nearer to solution, because the principles have failed. If the theory of ether failed in ancient times, to give a solution of the mystery of the universe, working out the details of that ether theory wouldn't bring us much nearer to the truth. If the theory of all-pervading life failed as a theory of this universe, it wouldn't mean anything more if worked out in detail, for the details do not change the principles of the universe. What I mean is, that in their inquiry into the principles, the Hindu thinkers were as bold, and in some cases much bolder than the moderns. They made some of the grandest generalizations that have yet been reached, and some still remain as theories, which modern science has yet to get even as theories. For instance, they not only arrived at the ether theory, but went beyond and classified mind also as a still more rarefied ether. Beyond that again, they found a still more rarefied ether. Yet that was no solution. It didn't solve the problem. No amount of knowledge of the external world 
could solve the problem. But, says the scientist, we're just beginning to know a little. Wait a few thousand years and we'll get the solution. No, says the Vedantist, for he has proved beyond all doubt that the mind is limited, that it cannot go beyond certain limits, beyond time, space and causation, as no man can jump out of his own self, so no man can go beyond the limits that have been put upon him by the laws of time and space. Every attempt to solve the laws of causation, time and space would be futile, because the very attempt would have to be made by taking for granted the existence of these three. What does the statement of the existence of the world mean then? This world has no existence. What is meant by that? It means that it has no absolute existence. It exists only in relation to my mind, to your mind, and to the mind of everyone else. We see this world with the five senses, but if we had another sense, we would see in it something more. If we had yet another sense, it would appear as something still different. It has, therefore, no real existence. It has no unchangeable, immovable, infinite existence. Nor can it be called non-existence, seeing that it exists, and we have to work in and through it. It is a mixture of existence and non-existence. Coming from abstractions to the common everyday details of our lives, we find that our whole life is a contradiction, a mixture of existence and non-existence. There is this contradiction in knowledge. It seems that man can know everything, if he only wants to know, but before he has gone a few steps, he finds an adamantine wall which he cannot pass. All his work is in a circle, and he cannot go beyond that circle. The problems which are nearest and dearest to him are impelling him on and calling day and night for a solution, but he cannot solve them, because he cannot go beyond his intellect. And yet that desire is implanted strongly in him, Still we know that the only good is to be obtained by controlling and checking it. With every breath, every impulse of our heart asks us to be selfish. At the same time, there is some power beyond us which says that it is unselfishness alone which is good. Every child is a born optimist. He dreams golden dreams. In youth he becomes still more optimistic. It is hard for a young man to believe that there is such a thing as death, such a thing as defeat or degradation. Old age comes and life is a mass of ruins. Dreams have vanished into the air and the man becomes a pessimist. Thus we go from one extreme to another, buffeted by nature without knowing where we're going. 
It reminds me of a celebrated song in the Lalita Vistara, the biography of Buddha. Buddha was born, says the book, as the saviour of mankind, but he forgot himself in the luxuries of his palace. Some angels came and sang a song to rouse him, and the burden of the whole song is that we're floating down the river of life, which is continually changing, with no stop and no rest. So are our lives, going on and on without any rest. What are we to do? The man who has enough to eat and drink is an optimist, and he avoids all mention of misery, for it frightens him. Tell not to him of the sorrows and the sufferings of the world. Go to him and tell that it is all good. Yes, I am safe, says he. Look at me. I have a nice house to live in. I do not fear cold and hunger. Therefore, do not bring these horrible pictures before me. But, on the other hand, there are others dying of cold and hunger. If you go and teach them that it is all good, they will not hear you. How can they wish others to be happy when they are miserable? Thus we are oscillating between optimism and pessimism. Then there is the tremendous fact of death. The whole world is going towards death. Everything dies. All our progress, our vanities, our reforms, our luxuries, our wealth, our knowledge, have that one end, death. That is all that is certain. Cities come and go, empires rise and fall, planets break into pieces and crumble into dust, to be blown about by the atmospheres of other planets. Thus it has been going on from time without beginning. Death is the end of everything. Death is the end of life, of beauty, of wealth, of power, of virtue too. Saints die and sinners die. Kings die and beggars die. They are all going to death. And yet this tremendous clinging on to life exists. Somehow, we do not know why, we cling to life. We cannot give it up. And this is Maya. The mother is nursing a child with great care. All her soul, her life, is in that child. The child grows, becomes a man and perchance becomes a blackguard and a brute, kicks her and beats her every day, and yet the mother clings to the child, and when her reason awakes, she covers it up with the idea of love. She little thinks that it is not love, that it is something which has got hold of her nerves, which she cannot shake off, however she may try. She cannot shake off the bondage she is in, and this is Maya. We are all after the golden fleece. Every one of us thinks that this will be his. Every reasonable man sees that his chance is, perhaps, 
one in twenty million, yet everyone struggles for it, and this is Maya. Death is stalking day and night over this earth of ours, but at the same time we think we shall live eternally. A question was once asked of King Yudhishthira. What is the most wonderful thing on this earth? And the king replied, Every day people are dying around us, and yet men think they will never die, and this is Maya. These tremendous contradictions in our intellect, in our knowledge, yea, in all the facts of our life, face us on all sides. A reformer arises and wants to remedy the evils that are existing in a certain nation, and before they have been remedied, a thousand other evils arise in another place. It is like an old house that is falling. You patch it up in one place, and the ruin extends to another. In India, our reformers cry and preach against the evils of enforced widowhood. In the West, non-marriage is the great evil. Help the unmarried on one side, they are suffering. Help the widows on the other, they are suffering. It is like chronic rheumatism. You drive it from the head and it goes to the body. You drive it from there and it goes to the feet. Reformers arise and preach that learning, wealth and culture should not be in the hands of a select few, and they do their best to make them accessible to all. These may bring more happiness to some, but perhaps, as culture comes, physical happiness lessens. The knowledge of happiness brings the knowledge of unhappiness. Which way then shall we go? The least amount of material prosperity that we enjoy is causing the same amount of misery elsewhere. This is the law. The young, perhaps, do not see it clearly. But those who have lived long enough and those who have struggled enough will understand it. And this is Maya. These things are going on day and night, and to find a solution of this problem is impossible. Why should it be so? It is impossible to answer this, because the question cannot be logically formulated. There is neither how nor why in fact. We only know that it is, and that we cannot help it. Even to grasp it, to draw an exact image of it in our own mind is beyond our power. How can we solve it then? Maya is a statement of the fact of this universe, of how it is going on. People generally get frightened when these things are told to them, but bold we must be. Hiding facts is not the way to find a remedy. As you all know, a hare, hunted by dogs, puts its head down and thinks itself safe. So when we run into optimism, we do just like the hare. But that is no remedy. 
There are objections against this, but you may remark that they are generally from people who possess many of the good things of life. In this country, England, it's very difficult to become a pessimist. Everyone tells me how wonderfully the world is going on, how progressive, but what he himself is, is his own world. Old questions arise. Christianity must be the only true religion of the world because Christian nations are prosperous. But that assertion contradicts itself because the prosperity of the Christian nations depends on the misfortune of the non-Christian nations. There must be some to prey on. Suppose the whole world were to become Christian, then the Christian nations would become poor because there would be no non-Christian nations for them to prey on. Thus the argument kills itself. Animals are living upon plants, man upon animals, and, worst of all, upon one another, the strong upon the weak. This is going on everywhere, and this is Maya. What solution do you find for this? We hear every day many explanations and are told that in the long run all will be good. Taking it for granted that this is possible, why should there be this diabolical way of doing good? Why cannot good be done through good instead of through these diabolical methods? The descendants of human beings today will be happy, but why must there be all this suffering now? There is no solution. This is Maya. Again, we often hear that it is one of the features of evolution that it eliminates evil, and this evil, being continually eliminated from the world, at last only good will remain. That is very nice to hear, and it panders to the vanity of those who have enough of this world's goods, who have not a hard struggle to face every day, and are not being crushed under the wheel of this so-called evolution. It is very good and comforting indeed to such fortunate ones. The common herd may suffer, but they do not care. Let them die. They are of no consequence. Very good. Yet this argument is fallacious from beginning to end. It takes for granted, in the first place, that manifested good and evil in this world are two absolute realities. In the second place, it makes a still worse assumption that the amount of good is an increasing quantity and the amount of evil is a decreasing quantity. So if evil is being eliminated in this way by what they call evolution, there will come a time when all this evil will be eliminated and what remains will be all good. Very easy to say, but can it be proved that evil is a lessening quantity? Take for instance the man who lives in a forest, who does not know how to cultivate the mind, 
cannot read a book, has not heard of such a thing as writing. If he is severely wounded, he is soon all right again, while we die if we get a scratch. Machines are making things cheap, making for progress and evolution, but millions are crushed that one may become rich. While one becomes rich, thousands at the same time become poorer and poorer, and whole masses of human beings are made slaves. That is the way it's going on. The animal man lives in the senses. If he does not get enough to eat, he is miserable, or if something happens to his body, he is miserable. In the senses, both his misery and his happiness begin and end. As soon as this man progresses, as soon as his horizon of happiness increases, his horizon of unhappiness increases proportionately. The man in the forest does not know what it is to be jealous, to be in the law courts, to pay taxes, to be blamed by society, to be ruled over day and night by the most tremendous tyranny that human diabolism ever invented, which pries into the secrets of every human heart. He does not know how man becomes a thousand times more diabolical than any other animal, with all his vain knowledge and with all his pride. Thus it is that, as we emerge out of the senses, we develop higher powers of enjoyment, and at the same time we have to develop higher powers of suffering too. The nerves become finer and capable of more suffering. In every society, we often find that the ignorant common man, when abused, does not feel much, but he feels a good thrashing. But the gentleman cannot bear a single word of abuse. He has become so finely nerved. Misery has increased with his susceptibility to happiness. This does not go much to prove the evolutionist's case. As we increase our power to be happy, we also increase our power to suffer. And sometimes I'm inclined to think that if we increase our power to become happy in our arithmetical progression, we shall increase, on the other hand, our power to become miserable in geometrical progression. We who are progressing know that the more we progress, the more avenues are open to pain as well as to pleasure. And this is Maya. Thus we find that Maya is not a theory for the explanation of the world. It is simply a statement of facts as they exist. That the very basis of our being is contradiction that everywhere we have to move through this tremendous contradiction, that wherever there is good, there must also be evil, and wherever there is evil, there must be some good. Wherever there is life, death must follow as its shadow, and everyone who smiles will have to weep, and vice versa.
nor can this state of things be remedied. We may verily imagine that there will be a place where there will be only good and no evil, where we shall only smile and never weep. This is impossible in the very nature of things, for the conditions will remain the same. Wherever there is the power of producing a smile in us, there lurks the power of producing tears. Wherever there is the power of producing happiness, there lurks somewhere the power of making us miserable. Thus, the Vedanta philosophy is neither optimistic nor pessimistic. It voices both these views and takes things as they are. It admits that this world is a mixture of good and evil, happiness and misery, and that to increase the one, one must necessarily increase the other. There will never be a perfectly good or bad world, because the very idea is a contradiction in terms. The great secret revealed by this analysis is that good and bad are not two cut-and-dried separate existences. There is not one thing in this world of ours which you can label as good and good alone, and there is not one thing in the universe which you can label as bad and bad alone. The very same phenomenon which is appearing to be good now may appear to be bad tomorrow. The same thing which is producing misery in one may produce happiness in another. The fire that burns the child may cook a good meal for a starving man. The same nerves that carry the sensations of misery carry also the sensations of happiness. The only way to stop evil, therefore, is to stop good also. There is no other way. To stop death, we shall have to stop life also. Life without death and happiness without misery are contradictions, and neither can be found alone, because each of them is but a different manifestation of the same thing. What I thought to be good yesterday, I do not think to be good now. When I look back upon my life and see what were my ideals at different times, I find this to be so. At one time, my ideal was to drive a strong pair of horses. At another time, I thought, if I could make a certain kind of sweetmeat, I should be perfectly happy. Later I imagined that I should be entirely satisfied if I had a wife and children and plenty of money. Today I laugh at all these ideals as mere childish nonsense. The Vedanta says, There must come a time when we shall look back and laugh at the ideals which made us afraid of giving up our individuality. Each one of us wants to keep this body for an infinite time thinking we shall be very happy, but there will come a time when we shall laugh at this idea. Now, if such be the truth, 
we are in a state of hopeless contradiction. Neither existence nor non-existence, neither misery nor happiness, but a mixture of them. What then is the use of Vedanta and all other philosophies and religions? And, above all, what is the use of doing good work? This is a question that comes to the mind. If it be true that you cannot do good without doing evil, and whenever you try to create happiness, there will always be misery, people will ask you, what is the use of doing good? The answer is, in the first place, that we must work for lessening misery, for that is the only way to make ourselves happy. Every one of us finds it out sooner or later in our lives. The bright ones find it out a little earlier, and the dull ones a little later. The dull ones pay very dearly for the discovery, and the bright ones less dearly. In the second place, we must do our part, because that is the only way of getting out of this life of contradiction. Both the forces of good and evil will keep the universe alive for us until we awake from our dreams and give up this building of mud pies. That lesson we shall have to learn, and it will take a long, long time to learn it. Attempts have been made in Germany to build a system of philosophy on the basis that the infinite has become the finite. Such attempts are also made in England, and the analysis of the position of these philosophers is this, that the infinite is trying to express itself in this universe, and that there will come a time when the infinite will succeed in doing so. It is all very well, and we have used the words infinite, and manifestation, and expression, and so on. But philosophers naturally ask for a logical fundamental basis for the statement that the finite can fully express the infinite. The absolute and the infinite can become this universe only by limitation. Everything must be limited that comes through the senses or through the mind or through the intellect. And for the limited to be the unlimited is simply absurd and can never be. The Vedanta, on the other hand, says that it is true that the Absolute, or the Infinite, is trying to express itself in the finite, but there will come a time when it will find that it is impossible, and it will then have to beat a retreat. And this beating a retreat means renunciation which is the real beginning of religion. Nowadays it is very hard even to talk of renunciation. It was said of me in America that I was a man who had come out of a land that had been dead and buried for five thousand years and talked of renunciation. So says perhaps the English philosopher. Yet it is true that that is the only path to religion renounce and give up. What did Christ say? 
He that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Again and again did he preach renunciation as the only way to perfection. There comes a time when the mind awakes from this long and dreary dream. The child gives up its play and wants to go back to its mother. It finds the truth of the statement. Desire is never satisfied by the enjoyment of desires. It only increases the more, as fire when butter is poured upon it. This is true of all sense enjoyments, of all intellectual enjoyments, and of all the enjoyments of which the human mind is capable. They are nothing. They are within Maya, within this network, beyond which we cannot go. We may run therein through infinite time and find no end. And whenever we struggle to get a little enjoyment, a mass of misery falls upon us. How awful is this! And when I think of it, I cannot but consider this theory of Maya, this statement that it is all Maya, is the best and only explanation. What an amount of misery there is in this world, and if you travel among various nations, you will find that one nation attempts to cure its evils by one means, and another by another. The very same evil has been taken up by various races, and attempts have been made in various ways to check it, Yet no nation has succeeded. If it has been minimised at one point, a mass of evil has been crowded at another point. Thus it goes. The Hindus, to keep up a high standard of chastity in the race, have sanctioned child marriage, which in the long run has degraded the race. At the same time, I cannot deny that this child marriage makes the race more chaste. What would you have? If you want the nation to be more chaste, you weaken men and women physically by child marriage. On the other hand, are you in England any better off? No, because chastity is the life of a nation. Do you not find in history that the first death sign of a nation has been on chastity. When that has entered, the end of the race is in sight. Where shall we get a solution of these miseries then? If parents select husbands and wives for their children, then this evil is minimised. The daughters of India are more practical than sentimental, but very little of poetry remains in their lives. Again, if people select their own husbands and wives, that does not seem to bring much happiness. The Indian woman is generally very happy. There are not many cases of quarrelling between husband and wife. On the other hand, in the United States, where the greatest liberty obtains, the number of unhappy homes and marriages is large. Unhappiness is here, there, and everywhere. What does it show? That after all, not much happiness has been gained by all these ideals. 
We all struggle for happiness, and as soon as we get a little happiness on one side, on the other side there comes unhappiness. Shall we not work to do good then? Yes, with more zest than ever. But what this knowledge will do for us is to break down our fanaticism. The Englishman will no more be a fanatic and curse the Hindu. He will learn to respect the customs of different nations. There will be less of fanaticism and more of real work. Fanatics cannot work. They waste three-fourths of their energy. It is the level-headed, calm, practical man who works. So the power to work will increase from this idea. Knowing that this is the state of things, there will be more patience. The sight of misery or of evil will not be able to throw us off our balance and make us run after shadows. Therefore, Patience will come to us, knowing that the world will have to go on in its own way. If, for instance, all men have become good, the animals will, in the meantime, have evolved into men, and will have to pass through the same state, and so on with the plants. But one thing is certain, the mighty river is rushing towards the ocean, and all the drops that constitute the stream will in time be drawn into that boundless ocean. So in this life, with all its miseries and sorrows, its joys and smiles and tears, one thing is certain, that all things are rushing towards their goal, and it is only a question of time when you and I and plants and animals and every particle of life that exists must reach the infinite ocean of perfection, must attain to freedom, to God. Let me repeat once more that the Vedantic position is neither pessimism nor optimism. It does not say that this world is all evil or all good. It says that our evil is of no less value than our good, and our good of no more value than our evil. They are bound together. This is the world, and knowing this, you work with patience. What for? Why should we work? If this is the state of things, what shall we do? Why not become agnostics? The modern agnostics also know there is no solution of this problem, no getting out of this evil of Maya, as we say in our language. Therefore they tell us to be satisfied and enjoy life. Here again is a mistake, a tremendous mistake, a most illogical mistake, and it is this. What do you mean by life? Do you mean only the life of the senses, in this, every one of us differs only slightly from the brutes. I'm sure that no one is present here whose life is only in the senses. Then this present life means something more than that. Our feelings, thoughts and aspirations 
are all part and parcel of our life, and is not the struggle towards the great ideal, towards perfection, one of the most important components of what we call life. According to the agnostics, we must enjoy life as it is. But this life means, above all, this search after the ideal. The essence of life is going towards perfection. We must have that. And therefore, we cannot be agnostics or take the world as it appears. The agnostic position takes this life, minus the ideal component, to be all that exists. And this, the agnostic claims, cannot be reached. Therefore he must give up the search. This is what is called Maya, this nature, this universe. All religions are more or less attempts to get beyond nature, the crudest or the most developed, expressed through mythology or symbology, stories of gods, angels or demons, or through stories of saints or seers, great men or prophets, or through the abstractions of philosophy. All have that one object. All are trying to get beyond these limitations. In one word, they are all struggling towards freedom. Man feels consciously or unconsciously that he is bound. He is not what he wants to be. It was taught to him at the very moment he began to look around. That very instant he learned that he was bound and he also found that there was something in him which wanted to fly beyond, where the body couldn't follow, but which was as yet chained down by this limitation. Even in the lowest of religious ideas, where departed ancestors and other spirits, mostly violent and cruel, lurking about the houses of their friends, fond of bloodshed and strong drink, are worshipped, even there we find that one common factor, that of freedom. The man who wants to worship the gods sees in them, above all things, greater freedom than in himself. If a door is closed, he thinks the gods can get through it and that walls have no limitations for them. This idea of freedom increases until it comes to the ideal of a personal god of which the central concept is that he is a being beyond the limitation of nature, of Maya. I see before me, as it were, that in some of those forest retreats, this question is being discussed by those ancient sages of India, and in one of them, where even the oldest and the holiest fail to reach the solution, a young man stands up in the midst of them and declares, Hear, ye children of immortality, hear ye who live in the highest places. I have found the way. By knowing him who is beyond darkness, we can go beyond death. This Maya is everywhere. It is terrible. Yet we have to work through it. 
The man who says that he will work when the world has become all good and then he will enjoy bliss is as likely to succeed as the man who sits beside the Ganga and says, I will ford the river when all the water has run into the ocean. The way is not with Maya, but against it. This is another fact to learn. We are not born as helpers of nature, but competitors with nature. We are its bond masters, but we bind ourselves down. Why is this house here? Nature didn't build it. Nature says, go and live in the forest. Man says, I will build a house and fight with nature. And he does so. The whole history of humanity is a continuous fight against the so-called laws of nature. And man gains in the end. Coming to the internal world, there too, the same fight is going on. This fight between the animal man and the spiritual man, between light and darkness. And here too man becomes victorious. He, as it were, cuts his way out of nature to freedom. We see then that beyond this Maya, the Vedantic philosophers find something which is not bound by Maya. And if we can get there, we shall not be bound by Maya. This idea is in some form or other the property of all religions. But with the Vedanta, it is only the beginning of religion and not the end. The idea of a personal God, the ruler and creator of this universe, as he has been styled, the ruler of Maya or nature, is not the end of these Vedantic ideas. It is only the beginning. The idea grows and grows until a Vedantist finds that he who he thought was standing outside is he himself and is in reality within. He is the one who is free, but who through limitation thought he was bound.